Chapter 13 of the Boy Scouts on Swift River by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 An Unexpected Bath. The next morning dawned fair. Camp was broken early, for it was desired to get below the falls of the Great Spirit for the next camp. A brisk wind and bright sun soon dried out those things which had become damp and the paddles were resumed with everybody in high fettle. The wind was with them, and this, added to the swift current, enabled them to make rapid time with little effort. The day was not more of a contrast to the preceding day than were the present high spirits of the boys to the glum depression that had possessed them twenty-four hours previous. There was now no grumbling or complaint, but laughter and song. It was good to be alive. It was good to be up there in the great woods." It was good to feel the independence of self-reliance. At the rate they were going, they should be able to make the falls shortly after noon, and as the carry around these was a short one, there was no apparent reason why they could not make camp early and have time to get in a little fishing, which was said to be particularly good just below the falls. They had seen no human beings since bidding Pat Malone goodbye, and mile after mile the wilderness continued unbroken. Once they caught a glimpse of a deer swimming the river, and an exciting chase followed. To Hal and Plimpton the speed with which a deer can swim was a revelation. It seemed impossible that those delicately slender legs and small sharp hooves could drive the animal through the water so rapidly. Woodhull had his pet rifle in his canoe, and Hal shouted to him to shoot the frightened animal. But Lewis merely smiled and made no move toward the weapon. The deer was almost ashore by this time, and a few minutes later plunged up the bank and bounded into the woods, her white tail waving defiance. "Ah, oh, Lewis, why didn't you shoot?' demanded Hal. "'I'm hungry for some meat.' Woodhull smiled across at the flushed, disappointed face turned to him. "'For two reasons, my son,' he replied. "'The first is of itself sufficient. It is still the closed season on deer in this state.' "'But the season opens tomorrow.' protested Hal. "'What difference does one day make? Besides, who would know about it anyway?' "'One day makes just the difference between right and wrong,' replied Woodhall, speaking earnestly. "'Today the law says that we shall not kill deer. That law is just as effective and just as much to be respected today as it was in midsummer. A law cannot be effective if it is strong only in the middle and is weak at both ends. Supposing we had killed that deer?' there would simply have been one deer less. Tomorrow we may get one. In that event the result will be the same as if we killed one today, for if we had we wouldn't try for one tomorrow. So the killing of that deer out of season very likely would have had no effect on the game supply. The intent of the law, which is to perpetuate the game supply, would not have been violated, but the spirit of the law would have been broken." A law placed on the statute books may be wise or unwise, it may be beneficent to all, or it may even work an injustice to a few. With that phase of it the individual has nothing to do. The law is presumed to be a ruling by the community as a whole for the best interest of the community as a whole. The individual who refuses to abide by that ruling, even though it seemingly entails an injustice to himself, commits a double outrage. He violates the confidence of his fellow citizens, and he perjures his own honor. If on the first day of the open season your neighbors, 
should forcibly or in any other way prevent you exercising your right to hunt, you would consider the outrage against your individual liberty, given you on that day by the law, unspeakable. When you hunt on the day before the law gives you the right to hunt, you simply put the shoe on the other foot. Then it is you who commit the outrage. As Lewis spoke, Hal's face had grown thoughtful. That's a new way of looking at it for me, Lewis, he said, speaking slowly as if going over the argument point by point. I never saw it that way before, and I half believe you're right. Of course I'm right, Lewis spoke with a vehemence of deep conviction. If you have any quarrel with the law, if you believe that it is wrong, unjust, or fails to attain the end for which it was enacted, it is your privilege, your duty, if your conviction is a deep one, to do your part in working for its repeal and the substitution of a just and effective measure. Making a law a dead letter by violation of its provisions is infinitely worse than allowing a poor or harmful law to remain in force. It is worse for this reason. It sows the seeds of anarchy. Contempt for one law easily leads to contempt for other laws. With people of small minds, it may even lead to contempt for all law. Respect for the law is the foundation on which society rests. Destroy this, and you at once leap back to prehistoric barbarism, when might made right. When you fail to obey the law, any law, you injure your fellow man. But you injure yourself more. You lower your own moral standard, a thing that no man can afford to do under any circumstances. You weaken your own character. You put yourself in the position of not being able to look yourself squarely in the face. We might have killed Mr. Lightfoot easily. But if we had, we should have violated the very first promise of the scout oath. What is it, Hal? To do my duty to God and my country, and to obey the scout law, replied Hal. And what is the very last of the third promise of that oath? continued Woodhall. To keep myself morally straight, responded the boy promptly. Now do you see the light? persisted Woodhall, his own face lighting up with his winning smile. Yes, I think I do, Hal responded slowly. My duty to my country is to obey my country's laws, and this game law is just as much a law as any other. Without obeying the law, all the laws, I cannot keep myself morally straight. Why, Lewis, that critter had a double protection right in our own oath, didn't he? Hal's face was a study in surprise at his discovery. Sure, laughed Woodhall. Furthermore, you'll find that that oath, short as it is, enters into almost every action you are called on to take. It is a pretty good plan to say that oath over to yourself the first thing every morning. It is quite apt to shed the needed light on perplexing questions later in the day. Supposing that we had really needed that buck for food, asked Sister. That would have put a different aspect on the whole question, responded Woodhall promptly. If we had been in dire need of food, the law of self-preservation would have been paramount to the law of protection for the deer. It is our right to live, a right given us by God, and unless we have done that thing which forfeits this right— taken the life of fellow man, we do no wrong in preserving that life so long as our action involves no violation of the private rights of others. The deer is common property. Were we starving, we should be fully justified in preserving our lives to this degree at the public expense. 
Doesn't that reasoning go a step farther and justify the starving man who steals a loaf of bread from a baker or a ham from the butcher? inquired Walter, who had been listening intently. Don't plunge me in any deeper than I am, Walt, Woodhall begged. I'm getting beyond my depth now, I fear. You have raised a question which has taxed the wisdom of the ages. When shall the right to life supersede private rights vested in property? Men and women are constantly being jailed in punishment for theft committed under the stress of starvation or other great need. I confess that in my own mind the justice of such action is gravely in doubt. However, perhaps it is best that the few should so suffer for the protection of all, thus making the law unviolable. But aside from all this, there was one other reason why I could not shoot that deer, and this also was a good and sufficient reason. Do you know what it was? Sportsmanship, sense of fair play, responded Walter promptly. Exactly, replied Woodhall with emphasis. I see Big Jim taught you more than mere woodcraft when he took you off last summer, Walt. Jim is a sportsman through and through, and I believe he would starve before he would do anything unsportsmanlike. That deer had not one chance in the world. To have killed him would have been simple butchery. He was caught in an element over which we could speed far faster than he could push his way through, and we were armed with a high-powered rifle, to avoid the bullet from which he was powerless in the water. There would have been no more sport, in the right sense of that much-abused word, in killing that deer than in walking into a sheepfold and cutting the throat of a helpless mutton. For actual need I would butcher, but for nothing short of that. When a deer falls to my rifle, it is only after my skill as a hunter has proven more than a match for his wonderful instinct for self-preservation. Let's hope that tomorrow your skill will be up to the task. I'm hungry for a bit of venison, laughed Hal. Then he added earnestly, Lewis, I've learned some things this morning which I shall never forget. I owe that deer and you a debt. Meanwhile, the canoes had been moving steadily downstream. As the discussion ended, they were approaching a little point which made out into the river. It was wooded to the extreme tip, a white birch leaning well out over the water, Walter's ever-watchful glance sweeping both banks in search of unfamiliar specimens of animal and plant life, was arrested by a black bunch on the top of the leaning birch. At first he thought that it might be a nest of the ubiquitous red squirrel, from the intrusion of whom no solitude seems remote or vast enough. Swinging the canoe a bit closer, he was delighted to recognize an old acquaintance, Erethizan dorsitus, the Canada porcupine. "'There you are, Hal. There's our prickly friend you were so anxious to see,' he shouted. "'Where? What?' demanded Hal eagerly, looking along first one bank and then the other. "'Look up in that big birch on the end of the point,' commanded Walter. Hal did his bidden, but at first could make nothing of the bunch in the treetop. Walter shot the canoe in until they were directly under the birch, and there Hal obtained a good view of the ungainly animal. The other canoe coming up, both craft were held against the current by back-paddling to give Plimpton and Hal a chance to become acquainted with this prickly denizen of the North Woods. Woodhall and Walter were more or less familiar with him, especially the former, who had encountered members of his tribe on many of his trips. This one appeared in no wise disconcerted by this uninvited audience and paid them not so much as the courtesy of a glance. "'Independent, isn't he?' remarked Sister. 
so much so that if you should meet him on the path, the chances are that you would be the one to step aside, said Woodhull. Apparently he cares for neither man nor beast, but only to fill that big stomach of his. In some states there is a bounty on his head because of his destructiveness to timber, but in other places he is looked on as a friend by the hunter. Many a man lost in the woods in winter has been saved from starvation by Porky. He is not very savory eating, but he is to be found when every other living thing seemingly has disappeared from the face of the earth. Moreover, once found he is easily killed, for his slowness of movement would prevent escape, were he minded to try, which he seldom is. Porcupines, like other animals of the woods, have a great craving for salt. One will gnaw to splinters a box which has contained anything the least bit salt. The best paddle I ever owned was ruined one night by a porky who ate up the best part of the handle because of the salt left there in perspiration from my hands. Can they swim? asked Hal. Sure, replied Walter. I tell you what, put me ashore on the point and I'll climb into the tree and shake this fellow into the river. It won't hurt him any, and it'll give you and sister a chance to see the critter at close range. No sooner proposed than agreed to, and Walter was set ashore, Hal remaining in the canoe, which was partially pulled up on shore. The other canoe remained out in the river, the better to observe the animal, the boys holding their position by gentle paddling. The tree was easy to climb, and Walter was soon out in the bent top as near to the porcupine as was comfortable. The latter had erected his quills and rattled them viciously, he was pretty well out among the small branches, and Walter's weight bent the supple top well down so that it hung at no great distance above the water. Getting a good grip, Walter undertook to shake the animal from its hold. But this was easier said than done. It was not for nothing that Mr. Porky had ridden out many a windstorm in a tossing treetop. Make as he would, Walter could not loosen the grip of the four-toed front feet and the five-toed hind feet with their long claws. The boys below began to guy him, and the more they taunted him, the more determined he grew that he would dislodge that porcupine if it took all the rest of the day. Edging still farther out, he threw into the effort for a final shake every atom of strength he possessed, and in so doing he lost his balance. Vainly he grasped the small twigs of the birch. They slipped through his hands, and with a great splash he landed in the river. He came up spluttering and blowing, just in time to see the consummation of his effort. The birch, bent far over by his weight, had, when relieved of this, sprung back sharply. Mr. Porky, wholly unprepared for such violence as this, in his turn lost his grip and was snapped off into the air. He turned a somersault and landed with a splash within a few feet of his tormentor. Walter did not wait for a closer acquaintance, but started for shore, where Hal was just launching the canoe to come to his assistance. Within a few feet Walter felt bottom and wading ashore announced that, save for a wetting, he was none the worse for his experience. Sure of this, his comrades gave way to a paroxysm of mirth, and while he dug down into his pack for a change of clothing, they kept up a running fire of chaff and comment. Indeed, they quite forgot the other victim until suddenly he emerged from the river so close to the canoe that his quills rattled against it. He paid no attention to anyone, but shambled off into the woods a little distance, where presently he began to pull himself up into a tree as if nothing unusual had occurred. Hal looked after him with admiration. Well, he exclaimed, I like that fellow's nerve. 
Lumpton here broke in with an inquiry regarding the truth of the statement often made that a porcupine has the power of shooting its quills at an enemy. Nothing but a fable, asserted Woodhull. A creature's quills are very loosely attached to his skin, and if the barb on the other end of a quill catches in anything, the quill is at once detached from the skin. The idea that it can throw these quills doubtless originated in the fact that the tail is heavily armed with quills, and this tail is the only quick-moving thing about the beast. When he is frightened, he will roll up in a ball, and woe betide anybody or anything which comes too close. He will flip that little old tail of his around like a shot and drive the quills home. I imagine the people have come within reach of a tail, and in the resulting surprise and pain failed to see how it was done, and actually believed that the quills were thrown at them. Walter having changed into a dry outfit, the voyage was resumed. Just after noon was sighted the little settlement above the falls of the Great Spirit, beyond which it was planned to camp long enough to climb Tucker Mountain and search for the lost mine. End of chapter 13